Thank you, John. You've had a busy morning back there, haven't you? Playing in the orchestra and singing for us, thank you very much. We humans cannot escape the reality that our view of ourselves and our world is forged at its most essential level by our understanding of God. We cannot escape God, even if we don't believe in God. Whether one denies God's existence or believes that God is an it, some impersonal force, or that God is everything and in everyone, or if one believes that God is the personal and infinite sovereign which the Bible reveals to us, what one accepts as true about God will inevitably shape one's thinking and actions more than any other single factor in his life. We interpret life's circumstances by what we think about God. Our view of God becomes like lenses, like glasses. Our view of God either helps us see what's happening in our lives correctly, or that view will distort and confuse us. This morning, if we put all of the glasses that are being worn in this auditorium up here on the stage, and then each of us just picked one out and put them on our eyes, it wouldn't help us a whole lot, would it? Because we know how sensitive our eyes are to these corrective lenses. Likewise, likewise, our view of God is like a lens over our minds. And how we see life, how we see our circumstances, depends upon whether those lenses are properly fitted to us or not. Therefore, it's important that we develop a biblical view of God, and that's going to be part of our undertaking this summer as we study in Jeremiah chapter 32 this conversation between God and this prophet, Jeremiah. The circumstances of Jeremiah's life were anything but pleasant. For the most part, they were pretty miserable. The nation of Judah in which he lived was collapsing under the weight of its sin and the pressure of the judgment of God against that nation. Jeremiah was the son of a priest whose name was Hilkiah, and he grew up in a little village just two miles north of Jerusalem called Anathoth. He was called as a prophet in the year 627 B.C. He was a very young man at that point. In his lifetime, Jeremiah witnessed the death of Josiah, who was the last of the godly and good kings of Judah. Josiah died in 609 B.C. through a terrible mistake that he made, really, in going out against Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, who was moving north with his troops across Palestine to try to uh, counter Babylon, which was moving in from the east. This was a time when world powers were grappling for who was going to be the strongest. 
And Palestine, as is often the case, was caught as part of the crossroads there of these great powers. And as Pharaoh Necho came north with his troops, Josiah, against the word of the Lord, went out against him and was killed in battle. Following him, there was a succession of godless kings, Josiah's descendants, tragically, who ruled over the nation of Judah. And they persecuted Jeremiah the prophet because his messages from God were against them. He told them the Babylon, which was becoming great and moving from the east and the north, would invade and conquer their nation. He advised the people of Judah to cooperate with the Babylonians. It would be easier for them to cooperate than to resist what God had purposed. But that very word from God seemed to be against the national interest. It was treasonous. And because of that message from God, Jeremiah was scorned and persecuted by the leaders of the nation. His life was one of conflict. He lived in the midst of terrifying turmoil. He lived in a time of political and national upheaval as the nation of Judah in particular went into captivity to Babylon. Because of the tears that he shed, he is sometimes called the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was threatened in his hometown. He was tried for his life by the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He was put in stocks. He was forced to flee from King Jehoiakim. He was publicly humiliated by a false prophet whose name was Hananiah and then was confined for a period of time in a cistern. His life circumstances were anything but pleasant. And this morning as we talk about Jeremiah, there's going to be some of us who will be able to identify with the misery of this man. We may not have spent last night in the cistern, but we spent last night in the doghouse of one kind or another. And you're facing suffering and misery in your life, and you don't really understand it all, and you don't deserve it all, as was true of Jeremiah. What I hope to help you with today and then through the summer is to check your glasses, to check your lenses, to check your view of God so that then you can know that God is all you need truly in the midst of your miserable circumstances at present. I want you to know that His grace is able to sustain you and to keep you and to encourage you in the center of His will. You can entrust yourself to him. Now, as I've said, the focus of our study through the summer is going to be Jeremiah chapter 32, where we have Jeremiah's prayer along with God's response to Jeremiah. Now, for most of us, Jeremiah 32 is just another chapter in a big book, so let's think about the context of Jeremiah for a moment. The book of Jeremiah covers a period of almost 50 years. As I've said, Jeremiah was called 
to be a prophet in 627 B.C. And about the last thing recorded in his book happened about 580. It's almost 50 years period of time. The book of Jeremiah is not a chronological account of his life. It is rather a record of his prophecies. And along with those prophecies, some narrative as it fits in with his life. But it's not chronologically arranged. It's, it's more thematically arranged. Let me suggest to you an outline for the book. If you don't have one in a study Bible that you carry, maybe you ought to jot this down in the uh, side of your, your page. Chapter 1 of Jeremiah is his call to ministry. Beginning in chapter 2 and then through verse, or rather chapter 25, chapter 2 through verse chapter 25, we have Jeremiah's prophecies to Judah, focusing primarily upon the nation where he lived, to whom he was called primarily to minister. In chapters 26 to 29, we have Jeremiah's conflicts, some of the troubles that came to him. In chapter 30 through 33, we have the promise of restoration. In the midst of God saying he's going to send judgment upon his people, he also promises that one day he will restore them. And so we have a few chapters dedicated to that, chapter 30 through 33. Chapters 34 through 45 deal with the fall of Jerusalem. <clears throat> when Babylon finally did come and destroyed the nation, took off captives to, to Babylon. It tells us how Jeremiah was able to escape that. Then in chapters 46 to 51, we have Jeremiah's prophecies against the surrounding nations. We have a lot of chapters devoted to Judah, but now at the end of the book we have his prophecies to the surrounding nations. And then in chapter 52, there's a closing with an historical epilogue, just telling us about some of the things that happened right there at the end of uh, Jeremiah's lifetime. Now chapter 32 obviously fits into those few chapters in the middle of the book that deal with the restoration that God has promised to his people. And in chapter 32, what we really have is an illustration of what God is going to do in restoring his people. What God is about to do in restoring them is a complete act of grace on his part. It is not something they deserve. It is something that he does out of his faithfulness to them and out of his desire to be kind to his people. In chapter 32, in verses 1 through 15, we have an illustration of God's grace. Jeremiah tells us about Jerusalem being under siege by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army. Jeremiah himself is under arrest by the king. And so he's not free to move about. The king of Judah has arrested him. But the, the, the city is also under arrest, in a sense, in that Nebuchadnezzar and his army have surrounded the city. It's under siege. It is about 
to fall. And in the midst of this, God told Jeremiah to redeem a piece of property belonging to his uncle. Let's read a little bit about this in Jeremiah 32. Let's begin in verse 3. Zedekiah, king of Judah, had shut him up, that is, Jeremiah, saying, Why do you prophesy, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. And Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but he shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. And he shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye, and he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, he shall be there until I visit him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. You see what Zedekiah is doing? He's quoting the sermon that he had heard from Jeremiah. He says, why do you say this? Why do you preach this message? And so he put him into prison. Down verse 6, Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. This is what God said to him. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is at Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. You need to be a little familiar with the Old Testament law regarding redemption. If a person in a family got into financial trouble and his land was under obligation because of that, and the debt was due, there was a provision made that that person could sell his property to someone else in the family and then take that money and pay off the obligation. The purpose of this was so that the land would stay in families and would not eventually parceled out to people who had gotten it through bad loans. And so here we have Jeremiah's uncle, who apparently owed a great deal of money on this land. And <clears throat> so Jeremiah is given the right of redemption. He says, you can buy this land. Now notice where it's at. It's in Anathoth. Anathoth is two miles north of Jerusalem. Guess what is between Jerusalem and Anathoth? A whole army of Babylonians. They've already taken Anathoth. And now Jeremiah has the opportunity to buy some real estate there. This is not the time for real estate deals. And yet the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah by the property. Now why is that? Well, he buys it so it can stay in the family. That's part of it. But there's also an illustration here. God wanted Jeremiah to buy the land so that there would be an illustration to the people that someday land was going to be valuable again to them. And there would again be the buying and the selling of land. That the land was going to be restored someday. Jeremiah goes through the process of uh, buying it and there's the signing and the sealing of deeds and so on. And then Jeremiah has the deed sealed up in a clay jar. See, that doesn't sound very secure. Well, that was about the best they had then. They didn't have these Kmart things you can get that are fireproof, you know. 
They put them in clay jars. In fact, there are still documents being discovered today that are preserved after 2,000 years in clay jars. And so it was preserved for the future. God was about to punish the nation for its sin against him. And yet he would act to keep his promises. Act in grace. You see the illustration here? God is going to keep his promises even though the people don't deserve it. And so he illustrates his grace by having Jeremiah buy this land that was really worthless. Because someday God was going to make it worth something again. And so in verse 16 it says, And I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah. Remember that Sunday that I brought the magazine with the fingerprint on the seal? This is that Baruch, whose fingerprint is probably on that seal that I showed you. It's a clay seal. It had been sealed up, and Baruch, who was the secretary or the assistant for Jeremiah, took the deeds. And then Jeremiah says, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, oh, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power, and by thine outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, who showest loving kindness to thousands. Now we're going to stop at that point in the prayer this morning, but that covers the theme we want to talk about, which is the greatness of God's grace. We have seen God's grace illustrated. Now we're going to see in this prayer God's grace proclaimed by Jeremiah in the prayer. The God of Judah is here identified as the creator of the universe. We have a little insight here into Jeremiah's theology. In fact, this prayer is a marvelous statement of theology. But he begins at the beginning. He begins at Genesis by saying, You have made the heavens and the earth which is a way of saying, God, you have made the universe. Everything that is, you have formed it. You have fashioned it. Now that was an important statement. I want you to go back to chapter 10 of Jeremiah, where a similar statement is made, where Jeremiah again calls God the Creator. <clears throat> In Jeremiah 10, Jeremiah is attacking the, the false gods that God's people had followed. They had gone after the idols of the nations. And so Jeremiah is showing how weak these gods are. He says in verse 5, for example, like a scarecrow in a cucumber field are they. Have you ever seen a scarecrow out in a, a pumpkin field, a cornfield? Just standing there, stark, unmoving. See, that's what their gods are like, like scarecrows. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. You see, he's mocking them. He says, do not fear them. They can do no harm, nor can they do any good for that matter. They're meaningless. And then he says, there is none like thee, O Lord. Thou art great, and a great is thy name in might. Who would not fear thee, O king of the nations? And he goes on to praise God. 
Then in verse 11, Thus you shall say to them, The gods that did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. So Jeremiah is in this book contrasting the God of Judah who made the universe to the pitiful gods of the nations. And the sad, tragic thing is that God's own people had turned from the God who had made the universe to follow these gods who were like scarecrows in a cucumber field. Now before we condemn them too quickly, we have to look at our own lives and see what scarecrows we might have today that we follow and that we worship instead of the maker of the heavens and the earth. Jeremiah reminds the people of God that it is their God who made the heavens and the earth. And he mocks the false idols. And he says regarding their God that nothing, Lord, is too difficult for you. We sing a chorus about this text, don't we? Nothing is too difficult for thee. The word difficult here means too wonderful. The idea is nothing is beyond the bounds for you. Nothing is, is too extraordinary. He's saying you can imagine as far as you can and then there's God beyond that. What do you think God can do? Whatever you think God can do, he can do more than that. In your wildest imagination, what can you imagine God doing? Well, well God can do more than that. Paul joins with this in Ephesians chapter 3. He is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or even think. He's able. Nothing is too difficult for God. Nothing. The very first time this phrase is used in the Bible is in Genesis chapter 18, where the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. God can even cause a womb that has been closed to be opened in the old age to bear a son. Nothing is too difficult for God. Not even the expression of grace to people who do not deserve it. Notice how that ties together in Jeremiah's prayer. Nothing is too difficult for thee who showest loving kindness to thousands. God is even able to express kindness toward those who are undeserving of his kindness. This word loving kindness is not easy to translate into the English. It's used plenty of times in the Old Testament, in fact 250 times. And Jeremiah uses it five times. 
but it's not easy to translate into the English because of its, of its meaning. Probably this word loving kindness is about as close as you can get to it. But it means also faithful love that, that acts in the best interests of the one that's loved. Even if that one that's loved is pitiful and unworthy and undeserving, it acts in the best interests. This word loving kindness is closely associated with the, the, the covenants of God. Turn back to Exodus chapter 20 for a moment and notice how it's used when the Ten Commandments are given to Israel. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5. God says, you shall not make yourself an idol. And in verse 5 he says, you shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands. Notice that same phrase in Jeremiah. Jeremiah may well have brought that phrase from Exodus 20 into his prayer in, in Jeremiah chapter 32. It means that God shows his loving-kindness to thousands of generations of those that love him. To those who are related to him in covenant, God is loving-kind. And so it's understood by some that this word loving-kindness means loyal love that's based upon a relationship. The relationship exists Therefore, I will be loving and loyal to this one with whom I'm in relationship. However, there are other places where this same word is used in the context of God's everlasting loving kindness, not in relation to covenant only. And probably it's better to understand it here in that sense. Yes, God was going to be faithful to his people because of the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and with David. But his loving kindness preceded the covenant. That's the point. It is better here to see this faithful love as that which preceded the covenant and made room for the covenant that God made with his people. God acts in love and in grace toward us, not merely because he has a covenant with us based on the cross, but because God is, by his eternal nature, loving and kind. You say, well, what does all of this have to do with the circumstances of my life today? There are two things I want to say to you. God is the maker of heaven and earth. That means that God, in his sovereignty, is able to oversee the circumstances of your life this morning. Now, like Israel, you may have gotten into your circumstances because of disobedience. And so we don't say that God created the circumstances in that sense. It's perhaps been you that have created the circumstances. But never are our circumstances outside of God's superintendence. 
He is always overseeing our circumstances, even in our disobedience, as with the people of Israel here. He had told them what would happen if they disobeyed. They disobeyed. It came upon them. But God is overseeing Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon coming against his people. And though it will be a harsh discipline, and we'll get into that next week about God's discipline, God is being loving, kind, and he is going to restore his people. This morning you need to understand and believe that your circumstances too, however miserable you may be, however difficult they are, however chafing against you, that your circumstances are shepherded by sovereign hands, a God who made heaven and earth, and who is not going to fail in shaping the circumstances of your life too, for your good and for his glory. The second thing I want you to see is that just as God's faithful love and grace was all that Jeremiah needed to keep him going in the midst of his distress, it's also enough for you. God is loving kind. God is faithful in his loyal love to you. And all that you need in the midst of your circumstances is him. I hope that you will believe that this morning and that you will turn from the anxiety that may be eating away at your joy or the guilt that is eroding your peace or the doubts and self-condemnation that are destroying that walk with God that you have known. I hope that you will believe what I am saying this morning and receive from God's loving kindness what you need in the midst of your circumstances. At the cross represented back here on our wall this morning, at that cross that Jesus died on, God demonstrated that the entire debt of your failures and of your sins was paid for forever by what Jesus did. He proved his love and his kindness toward you. And he is not going to drop you now, wherever this day finds you in the pilgrimage of your life. God is going to be faithful because he is a faithful God. If we believe not, yet he abides faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. He cannot deny himself. This last week we had a lot of work to do around our house and I was trying to be helpful to my wife. Sometimes sincerity is not enough. I went down to the basement and I noticed that a string had come off of one of our lights. We have the old-fashioned kind of light. You pull on the string and it comes on, you know. And the string had come loose, and so I thought, well, I'm going to replace that string. She hasn't even asked me to do it. I'm going to show her how godly I am. I'm going to do it before she asks. And so I got a five-gallon bucket that I use for these purposes, and I turned it upside down, and I stood up on that bucket, and I replaced that string. And then I put my foot back to get off the bucket. 
Freeze that frame for just a moment. I wish I could. We had an open house yesterday, and as part of the open house, my wife had a lot of food to prepare. And one of the things she did was to get about four or five pounds of grapes. And she had washed these grapes and prepared them for yesterday. She put them in plastic bags in the basement where they would be cool. She had them sitting in a pan that was on a laundry basket that was right beside my five-gallon bucket. Now we'll go back to the action. <laughs> my foot comes down, hits the laundry basket, flips the grapes up into the air, and between my foot hitting the basket and hitting the floor, somehow those grapes got underneath my foot. And I saw myself dancing on four pounds of grapes. Have you ever seen that I Love Lucy where she's in Italy? I tell you, that's the first thing that came to my mind when I looked down and saw my foot on those grapes. I was devastated. My wife was working hard, and here I had destroyed these grapes. And so I take the grapes upstairs. And I present my work to her. <laughs> this wasn't what she had in mind by preparing the grapes. And you know what? She was loving kind. She didn't even yell at me. She didn't say an unkind thing to me. It was almost like, oh well, we can get more grapes. I felt terrible. My joy was gone. Believe me. My peace had disappeared. My marriage was on the rocks. <laughs> and yet, my wife is so wonderful that she was loving kind to me. Now, she wasn't loving kind to me because there's a marriage license that I have. I didn't have to pull it out and say, honey, see this? You have to forgive me. No. It wasn't because of the covenant that she forgave. We have a covenant. But what preceded the covenant was love. And what has preceded God's covenant with you and me is love. Oh, yes, God's faithful to us because of the covenant and the promises he's made to us because of the cross. And that provides the foundation for it all. But God's love supersedes all of that. It surrounds all of that. And God is loving kind. This morning, some of you are beating yourselves to death because you have stepped on the grapes. You have made a mess of things and the peace and the joy of God, and you're wondering how God can ever love you. Friend, God never stopped loving you. God never stopped loving you. He is full of loving kindness. Great is his grace toward us. And so this morning my plea with you is to take your grapes to him and show him the mess you've made. And don't be afraid to do that. Don't be afraid of God. God will restore you. God will reach out and embrace you because he loves you. And so stop beating yourself over the head. And don't allow Satan anymore to rob you of the joy you ought to have by producing guilt, a false guilt in your life, satanic guilt. 
receive the forgiveness that God has for you and let him restore you out of the great, rich, deep love that he has in his heart for you always because of Jesus. Let's pray. I don't know where this message finds you this morning, but if you're like me and you've had that kind of a week, perhaps you need to come this morning to the cross and, and just there bow and show Lord, the Lord the mess. And thank him that in his loving kindness he, he delights to forgive and to restore you. And let him do that for you at this moment, will you? Oh, Father, I pray that you will embrace that one or those several who are here this morning deeply in need of this message. Help them to see that in the midst of the circumstances that are so raw and so heavy that you are present And you're great in your loving kindness. And may they experience that loving kindness and let that Lord be enough for them to go on in their circumstances. And to know that you're going to bring them through the circumstances in a way that will help them grow, which will honor you. Let's stand together with our heads bowed and sing to the Lord this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I morning we give our hearts to you afresh and we commit ourselves anew to walk in this grace in which we stand in Jesus Christ and Lord may we not only experience it ourselves but but share it with others and be gracious people because we are filled with a God who's loving kind thousands. In Jesus' name, amen.
Gordy Smith.